0: Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, your guests today are myself, Anna Marasovic, and my colleague, Pradeep Fesibi. Today with us, we have Leon Derczynski and Nana Ini. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you very much. Leon is an associate professor at the IT University of Copenhagen and Nana is a postdoc also at the University of Copenhagen and today we will talk about their paper titled an IDR framework of opportunities and barriers between HCI and NLP. I assume our listeners know what NLP is but they might not know what HCI is. So can you first tell us what HCI is and how is it related to NLP and what makes it different from NLP?
0: Um, yeah, so uh, I have a background in HCI and it, is, uh, it stands for Human-Computer Interaction. And it basically studies uh, thoroughly the way that humans interact with computers. So it's not, it's related to design, it's not quite design, it's not quite human studies, but it is how cu- computers affect uh, humans and how humans affect computers.
1: And how, how like let's say i'm like you you are an aci researcher as far as i understand and leon is for example, is an um, NLP researcher mostly so how does your research differ like uh, when you go to conferences when you your day to day research what are the main differences that you notice
2: that's a big question huh <laughs> well i
0: think um, from my perspective anyway the main difference is that is is actually the way we conduct research so When I do studies, it's always thinking of humans and where are the humans and what are the humans doing and what are the users of systems doing and what do they think about it? So often I find that when I run experiments, they can take months and years to conduct. And sometimes I hear Leon saying, oh, so I did a cool experiment this afternoon.
1: I'll write a paper. Sounds familiar. (laughs) Leon, how about you?
2: Yeah. uh... So, I mean, I come from a computer science background, right? Where... uh... It's it's one of those fields, there are a lot of trite sayings floating around. And uh, I think my favorite one about HCI was, well, we say there are are two big problems in computing, what we make computers do and and how we tell them to do it. So for me, HCI is the second, right? It's the the human part. And I think, I mean, with a lot of my NLP research, for sure, I think that's a, a nice vignette, right? One is focused on very often the technology and less on the situation of the technology. And I mean, someone has to focus on the technology, and the technology is pretty tough to get to a high degree of performance. So don't get me wrong, I think it's very important to have a tight focus there. But to be aware of kind of what's, what's going on with the humans around it, this is really important, right? And so for me, I, I see that NLP at the moment is kind of experiencing some dissatisfaction with maybe the shallow metrics that we have and shallow understanding of our systems and how they perform and what it means when they don't quite perform. And this is kind of this, this, this really reduced description of this human-computer interface, which is mediated by language. So if we want to get over that, those, uh, this kind of shallow, reduced version of how we interpret what's happening with this mediation through language, then maybe we should ask the people who uh, specialize in that, and that's HCI.
1: Definitely. Yeah, and in the paper you say the sentence I really like, NLP rarely studies the context and realities of people, which is obviously in odds with the fact that NLP is a field that studies natural language. You mentioned that on the other hand, as you said uh, just before, ACIMs to understand people and their behavior and realities through methods of inquiry. If I pronounce that word correctly, Nana, I think you would be a good person to answer about methods of inquiry and uh, why are they currently used in HCI and not in NLP research?
0: I mean, I can only speak so much for NLP research because I, I have the better overview of what goes on in HCI, right? But methods of inquiry or inquiry, depending on which uh, which English you subscribe to, are so. For instance, I was thinking like the 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 beginning, the very first HCI research was conducted uh, about around a printer. So there is a like. We wanted to understand how do we design the interface of the printer. And I don't know how NLP researchers would go about that, but I assume they would take input and assume some things. That's maybe me being biased. But in HCI, you sit down, you sit down and you study. Or you sit down and you look at people. You look at people, what do they do? And you do this for days and days and days. There's a lot of borrowing of methods from ethnography, anthropology, basically understanding uh, humans in the the situation of use, right? So nothing can ever really be done rigorously in HCI unless we, uh, we look at people and look at how they naturally use things rather than how we might assume that they use things. And we don't really test things unless we have built something based on a good understanding of how humans naturally go about this situation. So inquiry is not just like we would... We would look at what people do and we would ask them, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Why do you do this? And before we have done that to a degree where we significantly feel like we can understand what goes on in their minds and how they operate cognitively, we wouldn't say that we have understood a situation and we wouldn't say that we could answer a research question in a sensible way.
1: Got it. So it seems to me like a big obstacle to that approach of... To NLP is that it takes a lot of time, as you mentioned in the beginning of these episodes. So NLP researchers might opt to use some automatic proxies for pe- what people want to kind of build and compare more quickly, which obviously has uh, problems for actual use of this uh, technology. So if, if we take some example of an NLP system, let's say machine translation, method of inquiry would require that not only that we collect inputs uh, in in source language and uh, outputs in, uh, in the target language but also feedback from people who translated the sentence about why they translated this sentence in this way and then we would have to incorporate that feedback into our learning mechanism somehow is that right Sure. And maybe go even deeper than that. Like if you're
0: if you're building machine translation, what are you translating? Who are you translating for? And what are their goals? What where did they want to go with the translation? Why do they need this system? Do they need this system? Or could they would they be better off with, uh, I don't know, like a button interaction or a spoken interaction? So before you even build the technology, you'd go and ask what you need and why. Yeah, that's a good
1: mantra to have. As the next opportunity for NLP, you mentioned HCI methodologies that will help the NLP data annotation process. Nana, again, can you tell us more about what are these methodologies specifically? I
0: think actually that was one that we, uh, we spoke uh, a lot about while writing. I mean, we spoke about all of them while writing the paper, but we spoke a lot about this because for me to be able to say, like, we have X methods that might be useful, I needed and still need to understand a lot more technical detail about uh, how this research is conducted in NLP. So actually, Leon, you might have some better qualified answers to this one.
2: All right, I'll give it a shot. I'm going to use some, uh, some HCI terminology, and I promise to get at least one piece wrong. I just don't know which piece. So uh, <laughs> let, me uh, let me know if, uh, if you work it out. So I think so my, my take on this now is um, when we're doing annotation, um, we really need to develop a shared understanding of a task, right? If we're going to perform this consistently, and the only really useful annotations are ones that kind of perform the annotation task consistently. So if we're going to do this, we need that shared understanding, right? And that, that usually requires a few iterations, each involving some communication between all the participants, right? In that case, the participants, in this case, or it could be a, uh, The the actual annotators themselves could be the person who has specified how the data will look. Maybe there's a third person who's specified the standard. You know, like if you're doing named entity recognition, you have a person who wants any any R annotations, but you have someone who's written the ACE guidelines, for example. And then maybe you even have a mediator, right? There's a lot of different people who could be involved. And they all need to share that knowledge. And to do this, maybe you need some external artifacts, right? Like uh, some codebooks, your annotation guidelines. And also, as, as you're explaining the process, you need these multiple interpretations and explanations as well. So all the different people involved can understand the task because uh, we all interpret these things in different ways. Uh, and I think, you know, just throwing someone on the Connell data set and saying now do some more of these is not the way to get a good shared understanding of a uh, task. And so really, I think well, what we're doing in this case is we're, we're decoding these linguistically represented concepts. And We have to do this consistently across a group. So there's a bit of abstract knowledge that has to be be learned there. And for me, this makes it uh, a kind of task that that I'd call based on distributed cognition, where you have a group of people and they all need to have the shared understanding and understand the whole situation, which doesn't really exist just inside any one person's brain. Instead, the, the key part here is there's this shared mental representation of the annotation task. And what makes this kind of thing work really well is, like, as far as I know, and I think it's probably much better understood in interaction design than it is in NLP. They they probably have a lot of the answers for this, right? In NLP, we haven't studied what's happening in those annotation processes and groups where the annotations kind of suck, and no one can generalize from them, or when it's gone really well. And, and I don't even know how easy that paper is to publish. Probably if you've done a thorough job, I think any top NLP, then you would recognize it. But and be very happy about it, right? But uh, I haven't seen that kind of work for a little while. Instead, we usually just kind of look at a, an IAA, uh, inter-annotator agreement, or a Kappa measure, and there's a degree of eyeballing as well here, I think. And if it's subjectively too low, then we blame it on like, either the annotation process, or the annotation guidelines, or the, the task itself, or the annotators that we had, or even the data. So if you've got one number and you're eyeballing it and you think it looks too low and there could be five causes and then you kind of just guess a bit, I mean, this should be like a big flashing symbol that we're missing some knowledge, right? We could be doing this better. So for me, I think that's really where HCI and interaction design is studied very deeply and can immediately learn from this, which is great because this is a very expensive and core part of NLP, right? Getting good data.
1: Yeah, um, as someone who cares about um, building models that give justifications for their predictions and we collect um, human explanations for correct predictions, this resonates really well for me because usually there isn't one explanation for anything in the world. I want to also ground what you just said into two terms you mentioned in the paper. You mentioned that HCI methodologies are iterative Does this mean, given this group of people and everyone has a role in this annotation process, that we kind of, like everyone does something and then the last person kind of brings back the knowledge to the first person and we repeat the process until we are satisfied with a a final product? Or what would you say that iterative means in the NLP data annotation process?
2: I mean, you go through, yeah, I think there are many things that are happening here, but I mean, for me, the, the, the most valuable exercise anyone working with NLP data can do is spend like an hour or two going through the data, maybe trying to hand mm-hmm. annotate things. You will learn that data way better than you would through a month of running yeah. experiments looking at what went wrong, right? And so getting the little bit of knowledge you get from interacting with the data and then sharing it with other people and mm-hmm. discussing what went wrong, what went right, refining the guidelines, and then doing it again, right? And that's, that's your iterative cycle. There's a few frameworks around this. There's the Pustyovsky and Stubbs Matter framework, um, some adaptations of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's this kind of intrinsically iterative cycle. But uh, I mean, iterative processes aren't anything particularly new, right? I think it's more, uh, you should be worried if you're not doing this, right?
1: Yeah. One more question related to this iterative stuff. I want to understand better why the process we typically do these days when we crowdsource data is not iterative enough. Or maybe it is. And I'm just not aware of it. So typically we have the instructions and then we build a tutorial for annotators. And then we have an exam and then uh, crowd workers who pass the exam are qualified to do the task. Then we have some pilots uh, annotations. Then we give some, them some feedback. And then eventually we feel like, oh, we don't need to give feedback to these annotators anymore. And we leave them to annotate the task further on their own. Would you say this is an iterative process or, and if not, what what is missing and how can HCI help?
2: Crowdsourcing. So it's not, it's not so iterative for the, for the crowd workers, right? But they have to understand the task and they have to be qualified and they need a fair framing of the task that they can reasonably understand and conduct. So you have a, a bunch of constraints here. I think. And, of course, I mean, it depends a lot on the data, the task, and what you need the data for. Right? They have all these variables. I think if, if you want to find an iterative part in here, it has to be working out those qualification questions. Like if you're getting a bad mm-hmm. qualification rate, then that part of the process isn't working, right? And the workers have no yeah. influence over it. So the responsibility falls at the person running the task. I find it, I mean, in my experience, the um, one of the most educational parts of how a crowd task has been posed has been looking at when workers write, co- or yeah, when, when uh, crowd workers write comments about why the gold examples that they're audited with are wrong. I mean, this, mm-hmm. this gold data and the dialogue, a little bit of dialogue, right? You always got to give a text box. Otherwise, you're, just, you're missing a whole channel which will tell you so much about your task. But listening to that channel and building it back into the process, this can work so well. But I think actually in this yeah. case, I mean, the considerations are more like, like, is your crowd diverse enough, right? Both in terms of how yeah. much of the whole annotation is each worker doing, and yeah. what's your group of workers you have over there. Yeah, I think that's that. Yeah,
1: totally. I think a few recent papers in NLP also highlight that just having some kind of a communication channel, even an email, makes their data collection process way better because like establishing this social relation with their annotators and giving multiple feedbacks, rounds of feedback really helps. You also mentioned in this section that the HCI methodologies are usually very transparent and uh, this could help data annotation process in NLP, which reminds me of data sheets and data statements. Um, Are these uh, proposals something you envision for transparency of NLP data annotation process or hci has something way different i think the
0: the data statements are a fantastic step in this direction because we have agreed that there are these things that matter a lot to the um the data set so we all have to if nothing else at least say what we did and uh, i I find the um yeah like methodology in hci is a is really really important and not just learning how to do things but also learning to be transparent about what you do because it, it matters so much to the outcome it matters so much to the data and it isn't replicable if uh, if we don't know what went yeah. on or how it was annotated or who who annotated it or i mean um, a lot of aci uh, researchers use uh, mechanical turk i don't know if this is a but this is a crowdsourcing platform where you can send things out and then you can get some feedback. Like you can get some ratings or you can get little tasks done or whatnot. And I personally think it's really, really difficult to have things accepted in HCI if this is what you did, uh, not because crowdsourcing mm. is bad, but because you cannot see how it's bad. It's not transparent what mm. happened with the people who, who did this task. And crowds work fantastically for uh, for some things and, and, uh, and really, really black boxed for other things. Right. So I think the data statements are really, really good. I, I love them, uh, because they're being transparent about like, where did the data come from? What was the language? <laughs> why did you do this? And, and who were the annotators? And why were they the annotators and so forth?
2: Yeah, I think I remember, I, I love them too. And I think, I mean, they're, they're pretty much an established reality now, right? Or uh, at least I, I know I've contributed to a, a fair few over, over recent years. But I remember, Nana, when I showed you the uh, paper, kind of pretty excited and mentioned this, and said, oh, we're starting to do this in our field. Isn't that cool? And uh, as far as I recall, your reaction was one of horror. Like, uh, and, uh, you, you mean you've not been doing this already? How are any of your papers accepted? You'd be kicked out of an HCI conference straight away because you have no idea who the participants are. Yeah, so then, uh, all right, okay. It's very surprising.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's done in a very different way. And when you're talking about iterative, and I'm like, I'm reminded of how, uh, so I recently conducted uh, oral exams of about 150 students from the first year uh, of software de- development at the, the IT University. And we asked almost all the groups, like, if you're doing user testing, how many users do you need? And they're all uh, thinking, oh no, which number do I come up with? Do I, have, do I need 100 or 200 for it to be statistically valid, pretty much? But the thing is, if you're, it's, they're missing the point because statistics aren't important in ACI. What's important in, in ACI, because iterations, is that your knowledge is saturated. You have enough people when you have enough knowledge. And you know you have enough knowledge when the knowledge begins repeating itself. Like you introduce more annotators, but they keep annotating the same thing or like they reach the same conclusions. And this was it's not it's it's pretty common sense if you think about it. But this made them the students panic because they were uh, (laughs) they were thinking they have to think of the right statistical measures. And that is such a shame because it's not that difficult. It's not that difficult. It's kind of common sense, but this is iteration. And that's why we iterate. We don't iterate because we should. We iterate because we need saturated knowledge. Is there some
3: way to quantify this? I know it's a, it's kind of a, a weird question given that you just said statistics do not matter uh, and we need a better <laughs> uh, way of arriving at this. But, but as someone who works primarily in NNPS and as someone who wants to learn something from the HCI research, I'd like to know how I can apply these ideas to my uh, problems when I say crowdsource uh, a, a data set. So what would be your concrete recommendation for how I can improve my iterative process?
0: I would look into the, um, I can't say, what well, can I say? They're old. like they're, they're the, the traditional uh, people from HCI, Jakob uh, Nielsen <laughs> and Donald <laughs> Norman, um, have really good descriptions of how and why we iterate. In the, the Nielsen heuristics, it's the, there's a paper of like why five users is pretty much as good as 25 or, or whatnot, like because at this point you reach enough knowledge that it is the same, like there's a curve. And a lot of these uh, uh, articles and books aren't, they're not rocket science. They're really easy to understand and they make a lot of sense when you read them. You're like, yeah, I knew that. But even though a lot of people will say they know that, they don't actually know or they don't live it.
3: I see. Yeah. And this discussion, both about the iterative process and about transparency, it makes me think that one reason why NLP researchers, even though they're convinced about uh, the uh, points you're making, uh, cannot implement these things is because uh, it's possible that these ideas do not scale when you're building a large dataset, right? I mean, how do you make sure that knowledge gets repeated or or you, you iterate enough that you actually see the same annotations? I mean, that would Really expensive, right? So, yeah. So, what are your thoughts on that?
0: So, I mean, basically, the uh, Jacob Nielsen has this paper about how fifty people are not better than five. So, it's not necessarily expensive if it's done correctly. And I think what uh, Leanne was saying about like if we're talking the annotation process, for instance, I don't think it means that you have to have uh, fifty skilled people doing the annotation. It means that you have to have the right distribution of I mean, the things that might be important to the data set, if you're annotating uh, African languages, it might make sense that they're from different parts of Africa. Or if you're annotating different forms of abusive language, it might matter that people from different groups uh, and genders are represented um, so that no one is is left behind. There's this lovely uh, concept in, um, I don't know if it's an HCI concept per se, but the, the paper is called Most People Are Not Weird. And weird stands for western educated rich industrialized something and something because so much of psychology and uh, yeah so much of psychology research is based on the students of the professors who conducted this research so it means that so much of our knowledge about how the brain works is based on pretty much these weird people from the west industrialized rich so is it representative and i think that is more important in building a data set or like if you're picking annotators it's more important to be to, to think about these measures anyway than, than to necessarily pick 100 different annotators okay yeah that makes sense uh, thanks thanks for the pointers
1: yeah there is a little bit of tension between nlp modeling and uh, this data annotation process because right now we know that even having a small group of annotators can introduce some patterns in our data and then our models which are Heavily over parameterized can overfit on those patterns and not actually solve the task, but solve those patterns. So um, there is a paper that recommends to use at least, uh, sorry, uh, let me repeat that, uh, that recommends uh, that each annotator annotates at most 100 to 1,000 instances. Mm -hmm. So if you have only five annotators, then your data size is of uh, 500 to 5,000. I mean, at least two years ago, that might have been not sufficiently enough data, but I feel right now, given how excited we are about few-shot learning, maybe maybe we should just embrace this um, HCI approach and have very small number of very qualified annotators and have small data and, you know, I don't know.
2: <laughs> so we did, uh, it's an interesting idea, right? I think... And, and thinking a little bit about that, the, the, the last point about looking at a few people, I think if you were to ask five people to do an extrinsic evaluation of an NLP system, they'll give you enough work for a few months. <laughs> you won't want to ask another 45, right? So um, yeah. <laughs> So in this case, we, we actually we built a, a data set that was meant to be quite diverse in the content. So it was, we called it the, the broad Twitter corpus. And this was kind of sampled over time and space and a few other dimensions. And we had some, some uh, academics, some ex- well, some researchers annotate it first. So we had some gold data for the crowd then farmed it out to the crowd. And we saw this crazy thing where the, the researchers, the expert annotators, got this really high agreement, 80-something, right, on, uh, on this kind of noisy data. So that was cool. And then we, we found out the annotation. We had kind of the whole thing overlap. And we saw the crowd would only agree about 30%, 31% of the well, It was S-core, mm. but yeah. But then we looked at the breadth of entities that the crowd en- uh, annotated, and when we looked at our final gold standard data, they would get 81, 82 percent of all the entities. So if we just assume every crowd annotation is correct, then uh, we get an F score of uh, no, we get a recall of about eighty. Whereas the researchers, we get a, a, the recall was in the low thirties. So expert oh. annotators tend to really agree about a small range of things and a broad set of people, unsurprising, mm-hmm. right? They they don't agree because all their knowledge is, uh, well, often they have a lot of complementary knowledge.
1: Yeah, it's um, a lot of factors to consider when you are building a data set and you try to apply enormous model on it. Okay, let's move on to another opportunity from HCI for NLP. In the paper, you highlight that HCI could help with better qualitative error analysis. I want to first just describe how um, error analysis uh, is typically done in uh, NLP research for listeners who haven't written paper themselves. So, usually we have this quantity, we show that our model is better than a baseline using some uh, quantitative metrics such as accuracy. And then we have this analysis section after where we want to show that the improvements come from. The modeling component we introduced like whatever was the motivation for that modeling component so we would find examples where our model is better than the baseline and we will show that x and then kind of highlight oh you see now my model for example is better at understanding co if that was your original motivation and what we also do is we show examples where our model is still doing uh, errors and we say, okay, this could be useful for the future work. Uh, you should kind of build and improve upon this. And sometimes these qualitative analyses are perceived in our field as unreliable because only a small sample of data is usually provided in the paper because we have eight pages limit. And there is no guarantee that the authors didn't cherry pick the examples where that work really well for their case. So, uh, Leon and Anna, in your paper, you propose using HCI methods such as, um, I'm quoting here because I'm unfamiliar with them, cognitive modeling and chains of cognitive breakdowns to conduct qualitative error analysis. Can you tell us a little bit more about what these methods are and how would you apply them to any NLP system? If you can ground it in a concrete example, like this question answering, that would be great, but if that's too hard, that's uh, also fine. So, I don't actually know much about where
0: NLP research is used, and in that <laughs> sorry, <but> in that <laughs> sense, I need I need uh, Liam to help me with an example, but an or a concrete use a use case, but an example of cognitive modeling could be when, for instance, uh, I was working or I am working uh, now on um, on studying like how to uh, build systems for helping humans with procrastination. Mm-hmm. and to be able to do that we need to know why humans procrastinate, right so rather than saying jimmy hates the, how much he goes to he visits facebook and he would rather be studying german instead uh, so we should just facilitate that it's not that easy we need to understand which uh, like what what happens in jimmy's brain when he uh, wants to visit facebook rather than doing the things thing that he know on a long term that he would he would rather be doing right so there's a cognitive model of um system one and system two, uh, which might be familiar from the thinking fast and slow Kahneman, right? So there's the, the, the one system that's the fast impulse based uh, system where uh, that's the, the, the habitual system that just clicks Facebook without Jimmy even thinking about it. And then there's the system two who controls his goals and his long-term vision for how he would like to live his life. So uh, modeling what goes on, what goes wrong, what goes right, in these systems in the brain, uh, that would be a a form of cognitive modeling, Um, which seems to be quite relevant to error analysis. But Leon, maybe you have a more specific NLP use case.
2: Yeah, I I mean, there are a lot of NLP tasks out out there, right? I think, uh, so Anna's uh, suggestion of question answering, and in in this case, there'd be a a free text natural language question. We can go for the 1990s classic of uh, how tall is the Eiffel Tower? And the system has to try and find the right result from this, and so I mean, so in the, in the as far as I understand, in the um, this cognitive chains, cognitive breakdowns paper, they looked uh, where the concept comes from. They they looked at programmers, and they were looking at kind of where programmers made mistakes. This is kind of if you have any kind of quality assurance framework or any kind of swearing programmer, it's like it's possible to identify where something might have gone wrong. And so you can improve the the process and smooth it by understanding what happened in order to get to that place that things went wrong.
1: Yeah, so yeah, if you have, for example, a fact checker that is using a question-answering system to verify the answer to a certain question or just to find an answer to write, I don't know, a news article or whatever, um, the error analysis uh, here would be if we had automatic question-answering system we would measure when the reliance on this system uh, is kind of failed, and then we could learn how to change our underlying question answering system to be better. Is this how you would use cognitive modeling for something like question answering? It could be, it could be. I mean, um, yeah. yeah, I'm trying to think, because I,
0: I always think in, in use cases, And in uh, like when we wrote about error analysis, I was thinking more in terms of figuring out when does the data go wrong and why? Um, When does the annotation process go wrong and why? Because one annotation might be very correct in one situation, but not in another. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I was thinking more in use cases, actually, like when do people need to use this and and uh, and when will it be wrong for them or when will it be right for them? When will
1: it fit specific use cases, if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So going back to my potentially misleading example, <laughs> I will try to <laughs> make it work. Uh, if we had the data for training this question answering system, and let's say we have an ambiguous question that might have different answers depending on what is the assumption you take Mm -hmm. and you didn't annotate these assumptions in your data so your model is basically randomly answering these uh, types of ambiguous questions. What you might learn from a person who is actually using this question answering system is that on these type of questions they are kind of uh, whatever they are using this question answering system for it's uh, not bringing them any benefits and then you would say oh that's because. I haven't annotated this data uh, well enough. I need more more annotations here, richer annotations, and then we would change the annotations. retrain the model, maybe get more knowledge uh, from the better version, something like that. Yeah, go ahead, Liam.
2: Yeah. It's very interesting to uh, to hear that. I was thinking more of the uh, the situation where we're trying to analyze an error that the uh, that the model has made. But of course, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, if you have annotators with a misunderstanding, then you directly, I mean, that's perfect for applying. uh, these these cognitive model and cognitive chain techniques. I was thinking more of kind of trying to model what the the suppositions or reasoning is that might be Mm -hmm. happening within a model, modeling what's happening within a model. Yeah, okay. And once we can kind of understand what the failure modes are and where they happen, using these kinds of approaches to address that, right? instead of probing neural layers um, or having functional tests, I think instead of that, we can start to develop some broader... Or uh, well, slightly more qualitative, at least theories of what's happening that can explain the behaviour. And I think this is something we we talk about a little bit elsewhere in the paper as well, when we talk about grounded theories mm-hmm. based on the data. So it, we, yeah, it's a it's a new set of, of ways of thinking about how to do these um, more qualitative than quantitative, as we uh, are very good at at the moment.
0: In as a in a lot of these automatic systems also. Um somehow model what a human would do right so for instance if you have a like a a speech assistant or a voice what are they called voice assistants they're kind of modeling uh what you would like a secretary to do so i i find it's it's quite important to know what the interaction with the human would be if if you're talking like Mm -hmm. the end result of the system right what is the interaction that you would have in this uh in this situation because i'm sure we've all had frustrating situations with where some translation or some voice recognition just didn't understand what was going on. And and here, I think it's quite valuable to think of the, the system as a human and try and model the model over a, like the, the human cognitive model. I don't know if, if humans are now so adept that maybe we're so used to trying to speak with computers that we don't expect the computer to work as a human. I don't know, but it it might be interesting to look at anyway.
1: Yeah, that's interesting what you just said. I think there is also a bias in other way, like um, lay users might think that the technology is working so well because we bombard them with titles like we sold, uh, we have superhuman computers. So I think people do report in their papers that they have to teach their users that this technology is actually faulty and doesn't work well, that they shouldn't rely on it, and giving this having this mindset to do to do something else okay so i think i got something wrong when i was uh, reading the paper i thought like this cognitive modeling must involve a person but we can have a model that kind of simulates uh, what the person would do right but
0: then you start with the cognitive model
1: right you start with the cognitive model of, yeah. of
0: cognition and then you can model a system over that gotcha so so you're right it does involve a system because uh, as far as i know we don't say computers have cognition yet Let me know if you're further than us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: I wouldn't make those claims, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone else uh, makes them. All right, uh, let's move on to opportunities for HCI from NLP. You highlight the data produced in HCI research might be analyzed by NLP techniques, which in turn presents a benefit for NLP too, because now we have novel NLP tasks and text genres. Can you tell us, Nana, a bit about what are the modalities of HCI research uh, data sets and in which ways can NLP techniques help processing this data? And maybe, Leon, you can tell us about what the NLP technologies you think might be useful but is definitely not there yet to be applied right now to the HCI data.
0: Yes. One of the data forms that we have a lot of in HCI is interviews. it still surprises me how tedious it is to transcribe interviews. I always tell my students don't, don't bother. <laughs> it takes too long, unless you're doing like very, uh, very, you know, like um, minuscule conversational analysis. Uh, I have hour long interviews uh, from different, yeah, different scenarios. And then on top of that, I have hour long video recordings of people interacting with systems. And this is impossible to transcribe in a sensible way because it should be marked when in the video X is going on, and can you can you even transcribe this without also describing what's going on? And if this just a little of this was automated, that would be phenomenal. And I know that everybody says we already have transcription software, but believe me, it's not good, or it's not good enough for my purposes, especially not if it's in a different language than um, English.
1: Yeah.
2: Wow, this is a a tricky question, right? Which uh, what can't we do in NLP that HCI might like? I uh, appreciate the layers of modality here. Um. Mm -hmm.
0: Transcribe video, please please transcribe our video.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right, so I think actually also um, in terms of representing what's what's really happening, right? The 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 words, the lexical representation, is super surface, isn't it? It's, It's super it's shallow in terms of the information conveyed we as humans with a grounded understanding of the world know what the relations are between some of the items we can fill in the gaps in the interview we are able to assess the temporal and spatial relations because we already know the task whereas in nlp we barely have representational markup for many of yeah. these uh, for many of these concepts right there's still a uh, a great deal of fluidity about how we annotate time in language uh, personally i'm not satisfied with any of the options but even the simplest options are very difficult to annotate. The information just isn't there, right? Because we all experience time in a roughly similar way. So why would we need to embed it into our language explicitly when we utter things? And then, I mean, so there's also um, there's some nice work with, with VoxML, looking at uh, a bit more of the three-dimensional, looking at things. And I know it's, it can be a contentious word in design, but it looks at affordances. Mm -hmm. So this can be, and it has representations for these and can begin to extract them from text, right? This could be something like, if we say he grabbed the door handle, this tells us that uh, uh, there's a handle and it's something that affords grabbing, right? It lets you take that action. And this feeds a little bit back into NLP. Once we're able to annotate these things, then say if there's a grabbing verb later and we have to do some coref resolution, right, to work out what's being grabbed, probably it's more likely to be the object that affords grabbing, yeah, but we don't have this concept so much in our markup at the moment. And uh, to all the HCI and uh, interaction design people there who resent my use of affordance and afford in this instance, <laughs> I apologize <laughs> profusely.
1: Yeah, a lot of opportunities for people who care about multimodal stuff and also multilingual applications. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully they pick on this suggestion. All right. So in the paper, you kind of finish with. Um, output opportunities so outputs one could achieve in uh, if we apply different type of methods so in your opinion what are examples of research that you can't imagine would exist if it wasn't addressed with the collaboration between hci and nlp yeah, and do you have some smart thoughts or opinions <laughs> or things that come
0: to
2: mind i'll begin by uh of rehighlighting i think there's a massive efficiency that we are not making use of in LP, which is that we look at big thin data right we want to see um, all the way down to the end of that zipfian curve but maybe we're only looking at a couple of dimensions whereas we could probably learn a lot more there's um we could learn a lot more by looking at thick data right where we do a survey we look at whatever's going on with our, our systems how it's operating what the failure modes are maybe take a machine translation system have a few people run it and then talk to them about how it was, what worked, what didn't work, right? I mean, we have this, uh, and just follow these ethnographic approaches. There's all different kinds of them, right? You can watch people work. You can learn to do the job and do it alongside them. You can stand really far back, maybe at the distance of reading an archive of work researched 100 years ago. That's pretty (laughs) far. And just follow this approach and learn it. I mean, we have this, uh, within within machine translation, where there's a, a struggle, not only to kind of uproot blur, right? But also to pick a metric that's suitable. And I mean, it seems really unlikely to me that there's a a universally suitable metric for assessing machine translation, right? It's like if you think back to the SMT days where we balance fluency and faithfulness of translations, there was never a correct answer to this. It always depended on what you're doing with it. And to understand what you're doing with it, you need these HCI approaches. And that will tell you which MT metric to use, I hope. I hope. So I think there's a big yeah. efficiency to be had with this kind of thick data. Yeah, in,
0: uh, yeah. It, there's a um, it baffles me that a whole field can walk around and, and study natural language. And a lot of HCI researchers don't know about it. Um, just because the, the language, man, I don't understand what you're saying a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> when you speak about annotation and when like the, the, some of the words are the same, but mean completely different things. And I think there's yeah. so much potential in learning to speak each other's languages because uh, I promise HCI researchers are really good at finding research questions and, and, and applications of technology. But if we don't understand the technology, I think most people probably even in HCI still think that models like uh, machine learning models work by keywords rather than how I now have learned that they actually work. And I haven't actually learned that yet. Um, So I think there's there's so much potential lost in that we don't speak the same
1: language. Totally. Uh, I feel like we are raising these questions now because so much happened in NLP in the recent two years. And we get all these big models trained that can seemingly do very interesting and useful things. And now we are at the verge of asking whether they can truly do it if we deploy it with actual humans. So all the questions that HCI typically starts with are kind of what we are looking for uh, right now in the long term. Mm,
2: That's a, That's um, a good point, actually. Maybe HCI has got some really tough test sets and challenges for, uh, we can make mega glue or something out of uh, <laughs> of <sandbox laughs> super glue, right? And get some really, really tough challenges in there that really stretch the cognition.
1: Yeah. yeah, totally. Okay, we are out of time. I had a few more questions just about like what do you think are challenges? But I don't think we need to go over each one of them. Maybe maybe you can just like give all your final thoughts by saying what you think are the basically at this moment what what are the barriers for us to work more closely? Nana you mentioned for example the joint vocabulary is one of them. What else is the barrier? What do you recommend to do to fix this barrier so we can collaborate more easily? If I might add to the joint language, I
0: think it's actually a a huge problem that we are currently publishing in our own silos. I reviewed a a paper recently for a Designing Interactive Systems conference about how AI could be built more like in terms of like a reflective system and this old like Donald Shun design uh, reflective practitioner uh, framework, which was a lovely idea. And I had to write in the review that uh, the I can't even say I reviewed that. Sorry. <laughs> I saw <laughs> the paper and it was, I don't think it should be published in designing interactive systems. Cause I think we can all agree on this, but we're not building the AI systems. So I really, really wish that paper would have been published on an AI conference. Yeah. I really, really wish uh, that mm-hmm. we would visit each other's conferences more uh, so that we could learn more.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to add that there is this workshop on ACI and NLP. I think it will be held for the first time on EMNLP this year or some other ACL conferences uh, this year. So at least there is a little bit of push in that direction.
0: Not the one that was... Sorry, Leon. Is that the workshop where this paper was from?
1: I don't know. I just know that workshop exists and it might have already already been done. But yeah, I haven't uh, submitted myself, so I don't know. I didn't look at this closely.
2: I think uh, for me, the, the things that I've uh, learned a lot of from HCI have just been uh, really broad ways of just stepping back and re- reflecting about what we're really doing and looking at the data in uh, in a way. And it's kind of it feels like one of those technical debt reducing activities, you know, where if you code and code and code, you can be productive, 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 and it's just a descending slope into a horrible code base, right? But it feels like you're being productive, so you carry on. And so for me, working siloed in NLP without thinking about how language is just a way of mediating human interaction and information, You and it's really easy to just dig deeper and deeper without getting some big efficiencies that you can get just by seeing a, a slightly bigger picture. And there's so much to learn in terms of qualitative methods, ways of considering how a tool interacts, and learning that you probably can stop way before where you did and just deliver something that everyone's going to be very happy with and move on to a new problem. Yeah, there's big efficiencies to be had.
1: Certainly. Pradeep, do you have anything else to ask? I think I I asked all the questions. I might have skipped some.
3: Maybe not. I can't think of anything specific that we missed. I think you covered a lot of ground here. I think it is pretty good.
1: Awesome. Okay. Thank you for joining us. This was wonderful. I really learned a lot. I hope I myself will take more ACI way of doing things in the future.
0: Thank Thank you so much. I really hope to see you at some of our conferences. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for the invitation.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they're fun conferences.